Welcome back to your high school foreign language teacher's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement. And I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. Well, guys, we have already started 22 with some amazing programs here at the Kansas City Symphony. In addition to two really terrific classical concerts, we've also presented the music of the Beatles. That was a fun weekend. A little loud, but very fun. (laughs) Uh, And we also have had uh, performances of our Film Plus Live Orchestra series of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. That was also a very fun week. Mike played some brilliant flute solos in (laughs) Nicholas Hooper's score for that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of big Harry Potter fans came and had a great time. We've just been having a lot of fun, and we are not stopping the fun here. February is going to be equally exciting and fun with Return of the Jedi and some more classical programs, a ballet. we got all sorts of stuff going on. That's right. And you know, I mean, we've had some great shows, but we've also welcomed some wonderful guest conductors um, to have them lead the orchestra throughout the season. And we're excited to welcome another guest who's making his Kansas City Symphony debut later this week. Uh, Brazilian conductor Eduardo Strausser. So Eduardo has recently, he's spent time conducting in Croatia and Switzerland and England, and he makes his journey to the Midwest U.S. (laughs) this week to conduct Dvorak, Tchaikovsky, and Prokofiev with the Kansas City Symphony. But today... I don't know. I don't know how these guys keep track of where they are at all times, because today he's joining us from Berlin, but he's going to be in Kansas City tomorrow. He's just recently been in Brazil. So we'll have to we'll have to learn more about how you stay together, Eduardo. But in the meantime, welcome, Eduardo Strausser. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Well, welcome. Uh, So before we jump in with the nitty gritty here, uh, we dig here at Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. We mm-hmm. pull all the skeletons out of the closet. So um, I read that you are fluent in in eight languages. No. <laughs> uh, I believe English, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, German, French, Hebrew, and Romanian. That's right. Um, wow. So so could you possibly teach us uh, how to say Beethoven Walks Into a Bar in uh. any of these languages <laughs> that is besides English? <laughs> I will say it in Portuguese, which is my mother tongue. Ooh. Yes. And you say, Beethoven entra num bar. Mm. <laughs> I like it. I like I'm it. I'm not going to try. Anything nice. in Portuguese sounds sexy. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds, yeah, it that sounds better. Yeah, that it might does. be too sexy for the for us. I don't know. It's <laughs> good, though. I like it. Awesome. Okay, very cool. How about, how about in Romanian? I'm curious what it would be in Romanian, actually. Oh, no. Come on. <laughs> that is really impressive, though. That's, that That's is very insane. Cool. Eight languages. This is because I grew up in an environment that spoke many languages that's why and when yeah. you're a child you learn it much faster yeah and easier yeah but that's yeah and just it, like music right that's right but you know it's not it's it, when you speak a latin language then all, all the other latin languages come quite easy you know and from these eight languages five of them are latin languages so it's almost cheating yeah <laughs> I like, he's just like, no, yeah. it's fine. Five of them, you yeah, know, such, they count as one. It's cool. Such an underachiever, Eduardo. I <laughs> yeah. mean, come on. You should branch out and learn more non-Latin language. No, I'm just kidding. Well, you know, there is the cliche that music is, of course, a universal language, but in rehearsal settings, do you feel like your multilingual abilities help you have a better rehearsal because you're able to rehearse in the native language of whatever country you're in? 
Or I know that some orchestras, even if you speak German, let's say, if you're conducting in Berlin or French, if you're, if you're in Paris, they actually just prefer you to speak English or whatever your, you know, yeah. whatever your native tongue is, if, if they're used to that as well. I think, I think it helps if you speak the language and even if you don't speak it really well and you try you make the effort, people like that. What happens is that mm -hmm. uh, there are some orchestras that are so international that, uh, for example, in Luxembourg, I was in Luxembourg and Luxembourg is fantastic because you can either speak German or French. Although both mm -hmm. languages are not the, the first official language, but everybody speaks. And then I, I was there twice. The first, the first time I was rehearsing most in French and everybody was understanding. And then the second time I was, because it was a project with, with, um, with the kids from the conservatoire and they asked me, could you speak in German? Because most of them understand better German. And then I said, of course. But then during the rehearsals, the, the, the concertmaster said, can you speak in German, but then also in English? Because there are many people here that don't, they are foreigners, so they, not from Luxembourg, and they don't understand German. Ah. So this is what happens sometimes that, you know, the, the orchestras are so international that yeah. maybe people don't, just don't speak the local language. But I think it's really nice if you make an effort to, to try to communicate in their own language and people like it in general. Yeah. Do you speak barbecue? Barbecue? By barbecue, you mean barbecue? Barbecue, the food. You know that I come, I come from the country that exports the most meat. <laughs> there you go. Oh, That's yes. right. <laughs> You're going to fit in just fine here in Kansas City to speak, my <laughs> we'll, friend. We'll fire up the rodizio, right? <laughs> exactly. We invented the rodizio. <laughs> mm. Well, um, we're just meeting you for the first time. You know, uh, part of the reason you speak all these languages, of course, uh, I assume is, you know, as you said, is your, is your upbringing. So tell us, tell us a little bit about, you know, where you came from, your musical journey, uh, you know, what, what instrument you started on as a kid, just, just uh, so our listeners learn a little bit more about you. I, I was born in Sao Paulo in Brazil. You know, in Brazil, we are all immigrants because we're a young country. I mean, just like the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Apart from the native people, we are all immigrants. And I'm also a son of immigrants. And my parents were this first generation after the war. So no, they didn't study music. But they were very cultivated and had a big interest in music. My parents are chemists. They work in the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> used to work. Now they're mm. quiet. <laughs> but we were, <laughs> but we were, we were always motivated, and this was really nice. I have two siblings, and then I remember that I saw a concert when I was very young, like six, seven, and I said, "Ah, oh, this is nice. I also want to play something." And then I started playing the violin, and I was very lucky to have very good teachers from the beginning. Then I was telling my teacher, I need to, I want to play in the orchestra, I want to play in the orchestra since the beginning. And she said, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to play in an orchestra. You have to study a lot. But if you, if you change to viola, maybe you'll get to the orchestra earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very naive and I believed and then I changed and viola is my main instrument today it worked um, yeah that's how I came to music and and that was it Brazil you know Brazil is very far away from 
imagine Brazil in the 80s. But there was always, not a big tradition, but there was always a tradition in classical music. We always had very good mu musicians, very, very good orchestras. The point is that to study, I mean, for a professional life, you always had to leave Brazil mm. because there was a limit there. But then the Soviet Union collapsed. <laughs> and, and suddenly in the 90s, we had, you know, a lot of people coming from Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, Ukraine, Russia, musicians. And all our orchestras and schools were, were filled with these amazing players. Mm. And this developed the level very much. And I was lucky enough to, to, <laughs> to, to be a kid in this time, or I mean, maybe a teenager back then. And that's, that's how my interest for music started. And then I was not sure if I wanted to do this professionally, but I never thought about doing something else. And then a Swiss conductor came to, to Sao Paulo and I was like, wow, that's really amazing. And then I realized that he was professor of conducting at the Zurich University. Mm. And that's how I started in this conducting world. Yeah. Oh. Very cool. Do you still play the viola? Do you, do you, how often do you pick it up? No, I don't have time anymore, unfortunately. I hear you, Edward. I, <laughs> Listen, I understand. Yeah, I not even have my instrument here, to be honest. It's in, with my parents in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> because now if I have time to play something, I play the piano because I have to study so, so, so many scores and then I, I, I go to the piano. Unfortunately, because I really miss uh, making chamber music. So I actually had uh, two flute students recently, uh, both of whom were, were Brazilian. Uh, I mean, they're terrific people, but one of the best things about teaching them was that they introduced me to all of these wonderful Brazilian composers that most of us in the United States don't know. So do you, do you find that uh, you have an opportunity to do that a lot, to introduce other orchestras to so many of these wonderful Brazilian composers? I mean, the, the music's amazing. Like, I started playing their pieces. You know, one of them was this composer, uh, Garapesia. I am. Uh, I, I couldn't name all of them, but I, I would be so interested to know if, if you've had an opportunity to do that and what what the reactions have been from the various orchestras. There are really great composers uh, in, in, from Brazil. Of course, we, ha we, we hear a lot about the famous one, Villa Lobos. Mm -hmm. And every time people think, oh, oh, a Brazilian conductor, let's do Brazilian music, then everybody thinks about Villa Lobos. Mm. But I have to say, it's not so easy to convince orchestras <laughs> to mm. play unknown Brazilian composers. I mean, now things are changing in the past two years or so that people want to, to hear or to program all this minority uh, thing, which is really nice. Uh, so maybe the Brazilians now will have a, a, a better chance. Mm. But it's, it, it's, I, if I am 100% honest with you, it's hard to, to program all this uh, obscure South American, not only Brazilian, but South American composers. They're fantastic composers from South America. Maybe now it's the chance. Let's, let's do it. Yes, I'll, please. I'll support you. <laughs> Speaking of programming, um, how do you go about putting together 
programs like so you're you're coming here to kansas city uh, at the time of this recording you're uh, you're currently in germany but you're you're flying to kansas city tomorrow right um how do you go about putting together a program like this because obviously you're you're coming in um you know as a guest here in kansas city so is that something that you kind of put together a set of pieces and you propose those to our music director or are you assigned certain music? Talk a little bit about how that process works here, um, right? For this week specifically. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's very hard to generalize because every mm-hmm. every situation is a different one. Specifically, this uh, week in Kansas, it was it was suggested to me to do the Tchaikovsky, okay, the the Rococo variations, and I found it. Yeah, that's a nice a nice piece, and I I yeah I want to do it. Mm. And then I had to come up with a program around this, mm. and it was not so easy, I have to say. But then I thought, okay, let's we have a Russian, so let's go for the Slavs. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, you know, this is such a we've we've decided this program for 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 a while now. And then I was thinking the context that we are living now, and I wanted something similar. And I mean, by the context, I mean this pandemic that we're Mm -hmm. going through. It's not over yet, folks. On the other hand, I wanted something optimistic, you know, (laughs) not not, Mm -hmm. times are already too dark. Mm. And then I remember that, you know, Prokofiev wrote this symphony in the last year of the war which was much more terrible than the times that we're living now. But I mean, somehow it's also a wartime that we are living nowadays. Mm -hmm. But still, he was was trying to pass an optimistic message with the symphony. The war was almost over. And somehow, you know, we have to be optimistic that this pandemic will be over soon. And then I suggested this symphony and it goes very well with the Rococo variations. And then to complete the menu, for a starter, I wanted also a Slav piece, but a not so obvious one. Mm. And then I decided for Dvorak's Otello. Mm. And I was happy that that you guys in Kansas accepted because it's a nice program, I think. Terrific. <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting to know the, the Dvorak. I, it's a piece I don't know. Like you said, I don't know it little, either, yeah. It's a little off oh, the you haven't path. played this piece yet. Ah. I, not that I recall. Nice. Dvorak wrote... So many great overtures, and very few of them get played, I feel like. I mean, Carnival Overture gets played a lot, but I feel like the Slavonic dances are programmed more than some of these great overtures. So I'm excited that you're doing Diotello as well. Yeah, you know, Dvorak is a very interesting composer, because if you think, if you, if you, if you analyze it, he wrote great music in every genre. He wrote great symphonies, he wrote great operas, he wrote great uh, uh, choral music church music, mm-hmm. chamber music, everything he wrote was really, really high level. You don't find this in any other composer in the 19th century. None of them. Yeah. Brahms never yeah. wrote an opera. <laughs> Wagner never wrote a symphony. And so mm-hmm. on and so on. Yeah. But Dvorak was in every... Ans- I mean, he never wrote a ballet, let's be honest. But in his operas, yeah. there, there, there are ballets. You know, so it's really nice. And this piece specifically is really interesting. You mentioned Carnival. Actually, the Othello was meant as a part, the third part of a triptych. Oh. With uh, In Nature's Realm, Mm -hmm. Carnival and Othello. He he called it um, Nature, Life and Love. 
this was the original title with these three pieces together. They have they share the same motivic material, so it's really one piece. Yeah. But then for for um, editorial reasons, he decided to separate them. I mean, Simrock convinced him to to separate right. them. His publisher. Yes. He can make more money that way probably by separating them. So that's that's what Simrock yeah. told him. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, Eduardo. Speaking of uh, programming, how do you balance what you love uh, yourself personally as repertoire versus what you think the audience will love versus what you think the orchestra will love versus what you think needs to be heard? I mean, there's so many factors that we have that go into programming. How do you make those decisions and balance all those uh, different components to make everyone happy and challenge the orchestra and challenge the audience? That's really hard. That's a very hard question. I think, you know, I start by when you say something that I love, I just conduct pieces that I love. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't love it in the beginning, then I end up loving them. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I think that we cannot underestimate the audience, you know, and think that, oh, we have to program something that they will love. We have the moral obligation to make it interesting for them to love it. You know, and if you're doing it with with all the best intentions, they might not love it in you know in this ideal way, but they will get something from it. And even if you hate something, if someone hates something so deeply, this is 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 a nice a nice way of showing your emotions. That said. It comes then comes the orchestra because it's always uh, you know delicate. For example, one of the composers that I I like the most and I admire the most is Bruckner, mm. and it's always very delicate to program Bruckner because I have the feeling that audiences enjoy it much more than orchestras. Mm. You know when we program, especially string players, yeah. Special, yeah, the brass, they have a, a, right. <laughs> a great time, <laughs> but it, but I mean, it's also part of our job to motivate the orchestra and make it interesting for them. Right. That said, all of this said, I think that none of these should be the, 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 the force behind what we use to choose the, the programming. I think it's not, we, we shouldn't think about, oh, it's something that I love, the audience loves. I think it should be always the community. What do I have to communicate or to express for these bunch of people that are coming to, hopefully, coming to hear what we're presenting them? Mm. But for example, when we talk about Beethoven, why are we programming a Beethoven symphony nowadays, you know? That someone who likes Beethoven's seventh symphony has 20 recordings of Beethoven's seventh mm. and they listen to it every day and they are used mm. to it. And so why? Why do we program it? Why do we want the audience to leave home in these crazy times to come to the, to the theater to listen another Beethoven sound. You know, that's what I think. Mm. And that's how what I think when I program. It has to be something that connects with the community. And and this is hard, especially when you're a guest and you don't know the community and you don't know, <laughs> you know, then you can just guess. 
But when you have a relationship with an orchestra or when it's your own orchestra, then it's it's easier. So I want to go back to something you said that's intriguing to me. So when you, uh, I like that you said that you, you know, you may not love a piece going in or, you know, understand or appreciate a piece going in, but you, you'll, you find a way to, to fall in love with it as you're working on it. What do you, can you think of an example of something that, um, that you've conducted that maybe you were a little hesitant about, or, you know, not super excited about that kind of grew on you throughout the process? Anything come to mind? Oh, it's, um, now it's hard to think. I can think about the opposite because the opposite is also true, you know? Okay. I, <laughs> I, I, I read in a fantastic book by a Russian author named Shklovsky, Viktor Shklovsky. It was just letters. And in one letter, uh, the, the, the lady says, you know, sometimes when I see a dress in a shop window, and I don't buy it at first, and then I pass through this window like five, four times, then I give up buying this dress because I don't like it anymore. Or I'm already, you know, hmm. <laughs> and this also happens sometimes with me, you know, when, when I'm, I'm involved so much with something, with a, with a repertoire, and then I say, oh, please, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Although I love <laughs> it so much. But I say, oh, that's... Uh, this happens sometimes in opera, you know, because opera is something that you have to conduct 17 shows. And it's really hard to, to keep the interest, not only your interest, or I mean, not only the orchestra or the singers, every, your interest is also really hard to keep. So this is the opposite of what you were saying, you know, that when you, you come to a piece that you, uh, you don't feel it so much, but then with time you develop uh, a relationship. There are also pieces that, you know, at the end, you don't really love it, but, but you, you, it's like any relationship, you start to respect it. There you go, yeah. <laughs> well, see, and I love that you said that too. How do you motivate an orchestra or musicians to kind of keep that spirit alive? Because Jason and I do, well, and Mike, but we do uh, education concerts together, you know, and so sometimes we'll do a whole week of, you know, double days shows. And so, you know, by Friday, we're on our ninth show and the orchestra might be a little bit tired of playing Ruslan and Ludmilla or, you know, (laughs) in the hall of the Mountain King. (laughs) But, but the audience, those kids are there to see, to see you for the first time and they're excited and they haven't heard it before. So how do you, how do you motivate yourself and the musicians to maintain that spirit, you know, on day 24 of an opera or day nine of a kid show? I think the answer is, in, is already in your question, you know. It's, we have to remind ourselves that it's not about me or them. Yeah. It's about the music and the kids that are listening for the first time. I always, I always think and sometimes I even tell the orchestra, don't forget that there is always someone who's hearing Rodolfo and Mimi falling in love for the first time mm. you know <laughs> i cry every time mimi dies <laughs> and i've seen mimi dying like 20 times 200 times <laughs> but 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 we have to remember that there are people that are watching her die for the first time yeah. and when we have this in mind then we just we, the magic happens yeah you know also another thing that i always i always think is that no matter what happens there's always some, you know, someone who's uh, met someone and is take is coming, uh, you know, for the concert on a date. 
and you know, the, the, the evening has to be a special one and we cannot screw it up, you know. <laughs> we're there, <laughs> we're, there to, we're there to make people feel connected. Usually somewhere in the third act, I'm saying things about Mimi that I will not repeat on this podcast while I'm down <laughs> in the pit playing the umpteenth show. So I, you know, I need someone like you to keep me inspired as, as great as the music is, but uh, I, I'm curious. So we, you know, we've asked this question to a couple of our other guests, but you know, you, you do a lot of work both, you know, on the concert stage and, and in opera as well. And I think, you know, for conductors, those are such interesting complementary forms. So I, I would love for you to talk about that a little bit and kind of what your, you know, opera experience, you know, brings to your conducting on stage and vice versa. Yeah. You know, I was, I was very lucky to start my, my work as a conductor in an opera house. As I said, I left Brazil when I was very young and I moved to Switzerland to study. And then I spent many, many years in Switzerland studying. And in the last year of my studies, I, I was offered a position at the opera house in Sao Paulo, the city where I come from. And I went and I spent there three seasons. And in these three seasons, I conducted like 19 operas wow. because I was, I was the, only, the only resident conducted there. And, you know, in Brazil, if you need a Mimi for tomorrow, you, you, you have to call Europe. And then it's really hard. So we always have two, two ensembles. And, and then, you know, the guest, the, the guest conductors or the, 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 the general director was conducting the first ensembles the, the the performances with the first ensembles and i was conducting the the performances with the second ensembles which meant that which means that i i got to conduct a lot mm-hmm. and then i came to europe to germany i was also working at the op- opera house in the Staatsoper in hanover which is a big house here in germany and again, I was working as a Kapellmeister, you know, the German system. Mm-hmm. A Kapellmeister, which means that you have rehearsals in the morning, maybe a meeting in, with the singers in the afternoon, and in the evening you have to conduct. Today you conduct Tosca, tomorrow you conduct the Barber of Seville, and in two days wow. you conduct Meister Singer of Nuremberg. It's a crazy system here. But this is better than school, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's... <laughs> This is really amazing because you learn, first of all, you have so many people involved and everybody with the same goal. We all need to make Mimi die in the last act, you know? And to get to the last act, there are 400 people involved with orchestra, choir, children's choir, singers, the technicians, everybody involved. And you're there, you're just one more that are, you're there to make sure that things come together. So this is, this is a big school because it's, you know, you are dressed out of your ego, if you can say so, you know, you, you have, there's no ego, you're there because you have a job to do. As clear as possible, as effective as possible, as pragmatic as possible. But on top of that, you have to make people feel the emotions, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, really, it's really fascinating the work in the opera house. That said, when you translate this to the symphonic world, you know, everybody, when some, every time when somebody asks me, do you, do you like more opera or symphonic? 
it's just like you know do you like more your father or your mother <laughs> even even though I, I i would i would know my answer for that i would never say <laughs> you know <laughs> 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 and it's just, it's the same. You it's, you could tell you could tell us here on Beethoven walks into a bar, Eduardo. We only have three point seven million listeners, so only a small portion of the world will know. Would know, yeah. I'm just kidding, I'm including kidding. my parents. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, what I'm saying is that when you translate all of this to the to the to the stage for a symphonic um, journey. It's it, it's much easier in a way it, because you know you're there just among us family with the orchestra sometimes with a choir if the repertoire asks for it but it's more it's more um, it's more intimate somehow that's it I I don't know if I answered your question or it's just digression on mother and father <laughs> Freudian I like case. it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've said it before, I always find that um, conductors who have a lot of opera experience, you use the word prag pragmatic, which which I would agree with, you know, there's something, you know, for the musicians, too, I think when we're, when we're in the pit, you feel like even more so you're just, you know, you're just a small cog in the wheels but an important one that's the point if yeah. each mm -hmm. small piece is very important you know in the opera oh there there there's always something happens you know especially when it's a, a long opera like wagner or strauss the long strauss there's always something that happens you know always because singers are so far away or they have problems with their costumes or you know it, there are many many possibilities that that something is going to happen but i like to think that it's a little bit like boxing you know in, in box you will fall down some uh, it, you know it happens but the important thing is not to fall down it's to stand up yeah no if, if you stand up it's fine so and the, the job of the conductor it's a little bit like this there will be moments that <laughs> someone is going to fall down but you have to help them to stand up and this is something that happens in one millisecond. <laughs> yeah. One millisecond. And and this is something that you just learn with the praxis. Right, right. So Eduardo, in addition to working with orchestras and opera companies all across the globe, you've also spent time working with youth orchestras, including El Sistema, uh, That's the programs right. there in Venezuela. And you've said that you want to see a model of El Sistema in every corner of the world and that perhaps its mission is still not that well understood. Talk about why programs like El Sistema are so important to, uh, to, to the music world. That's the utopia. The, uh, you know, I'm coming off to Kansas City. I'm going directly to Caracas to spend two weeks with, oh, wow. um, with El Sistema. We're doing nice. a Brahms festival. Which I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, I remember the first time I saw the Simon Bolivar Orchestra with Gustavo. I was in, mm -hmm. in Zurich. I was studying in Zurich still. And they played Beethoven V. And I remember the, the, the trio of the third movement with the contrabasses. When they played, I, um, I almost jumped from the chair. You know, it was like <laughs> so much electricity. And, and they were playing, you know, like with 26 first violins, 24 second violins. Mm -hmm. It was... 
But I left the, the, the theater and I thought, wow, this was like Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was like, what? This is fantastic. Of course, I'm talking about 2009, 2000, I mean, many years ago. The situation in Venezuela is very difficult. I, I, I don't want to go into politics, but, you know, music in, is there is it's not only entertainment, but it's also moral support. Mm-hmm. And music is part of the lives of these people and almost everywhere where I go to, to work in almost every orchestra there is someone from Venezuela someone that came from El Sistema you know here in Berlin in Berlin and Philharmonica there are two one contrabass fantastic contrabass in Zurich there is of the bassoon player in Lausanne I met a noble player and so on and so everywhere you find these people it's a pity that they have to leave because uh, the situation there is really hard. I mean, the truth is that in order to one person live so well as we do, many people have to live in very, very bad conditions. And, and when you're in South America, coming from South America, you see that in your face when you leave your house, you know, it's, it's there. Maybe here in Europe or in the United States, you don't see that so often, but the situation is really bad and music is, is the way out of this misery. Yeah. Uh, it, what, which doesn't mean that, because almost 100% of kids learn music, an instrument in Venezuela, if not all of them, uh, uh, nearly all of them. It doesn't mean that all of them will become professional musicians and will end up playing in the Simon Bolivar. No, but music brings them to a new reality. They start to think different. They start to have goals in life. They are out. Mm. They are not in contact with criminality because if they were not playing an instrument, they would be in, in an environment where crime reigns and so on. So I think, I think you're right. This is maybe a utopia, but it's a, it, we have to have utopia sometimes. And I think that if, if we could spread this, the virus of the Sistema, the world would be a better place. Well, I, I, I love that you shared that so much. I mean, you're, you're singing my song. Uh, so <laughs> I, I actually, I, I, I know um, a, a composer from Venezuela uh, quite well who, who came up through El Sistema, but, but I met him because in high school uh, I had an opportunity to go to Caracas and, you know, we hung out with a lot of the El Sistema players, mostly flute players, because we were there for a flute choir thing. But um, yeah, it is an unbelievable culture of music. And, um, and I couldn't, I couldn't agree more uh, that, that we need more of that here in the United States. I mean, I'm, I'm curious what you think, you know, I, how do we get people in the United States or in the world to embrace this more? I mean, we have to a certain extent, but, um, but it's something, it's something I think that is so, um, I don't know, innate in a certain way to Venezuelans that, that a lot of other people don't get. Like, why is this such a powerful thing for young people? And, and like, how do we, how do we get more people to embrace uh, the importance of it and the value of it? I think the, the answer is quite simple. It's money. You know, you, because uh, if you don't put money in projects like this, uh, projects like this would not exist. And this was a decision made in Venezuela 30 years ago, maybe more, 40 years ago. But the system in Venezuela is, is so broken. They are so dependent on their petrodollars. 
but they never never gave up giving money to El Sistema. Of course, it's not only public money. They have the, the Hitler Foundation behind them, so they have very good sponsors who put a lot of money and a lot of effort. But at the end of the day, this is the thing. It's investment. You cannot expect to have such a thing if you don't pay for it. The good thing is that when you compare to the, all the other things that we spend money, it's very little, you know, yeah. the problem. This was a big discussion here in Germany during the, the beginning of the pandemics, because one of the first things in the whole world uh, that politicians wanted to cut was the money for culture. I don't know how is it in, in the United States, maybe mm -hmm. it's different. But here in Europe, this was a big, a big issue. And, you know, it was such a ridiculous discussion because at the end, it was like 2% of the whole budget of the country that goes to culture. So if you cut 2%, it's nothing. You know, there are other right. things. Let's, yeah. let's If only we had 2% in this country. <laughs> no, no, Mike, Mike just hit the nail on the head, though. I think ours is like 0.000002%. That's, yeah. that's how much it is in our budget in this country. So. But that's, that's, it. That's, the, that's the way you, if you want to have... A, 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 a educational project. It's not even educational project because this, in my right. opinion, this has more to do with human rights than with education. You know, uh, you have to invest. So uh, here, it Beethoven walks into a bar. I don't know if you read all of the fine print uh, in our contract that says we have to ask two very important questions of all of our guests. It's required, and they are as follows. Number one. If you were to find yourself in a bar with Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven, what would you want to ask Beethoven? And number two, and personally, I think this is almost more important, what would your beverage of choice be to enjoy with Beethoven, either alcoholic, non-alcoholic, water, if you must? <laughs> no, I prefer alcoholic, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, I knew you fit right in with us. <laughs> you know, uh, I, uh, it's to drink specifically with Beethoven. You know, I like a good drink, I have to say. I like, I like um, a Tom Collins, for example. I don't know if it's... Ah. Uh, yeah. I learned that with my mom. It's my mom's favorite drink, the Tom Collins. But I also like the Boulevardier. Do you know the Boulevardier in, in America? Yeah. It's a very good one. Mm -hmm. Tell everyone what a Boulevardier is. The Boulevardier is whiskey, vermouth, and Campari. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's if you didn't try, try it. <laughs> it's very good. But with Beethoven specifically, I, I don't know. Maybe I would have a beer with Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> and what I would ask him, ah, what I would ask him, if it was in the, in the beginning of the night, I would ask him, you know, why didn't you write a viola concerto? <laughs> but, you know, after a couple of drinks, I think I would ask him about his relationship with his nephew, Carl, you know. Mm -hmm. This is something that was always intriguing, intriguing to me. A guy who wrote yeah. so much sensitive music, who understood the human soul so much. Anyone who listens to his piano sonatas, the slow mm -hmm. movements, or, and, and, you know, it's, 
and a guy who wrote Alle Menschen werden Brüder Every, all the, hum, the mankind becomes brothers and sisters nowadays how, how, how could he do that to Karl you know there are sources that say that Karl almost committed suicide or attempted to commit suicide because he couldn't stand that relationship anymore I think I would I would talk to him about that but after some drinks of course because a couple drinks yeah, yeah. you don't lead with that a couple dunkles yeah. <laughs> we're going to move on to the podcast sensation that is sweeping the nation which is the Beethoven walks into a bar top 5 it's a top 5 it's a top 5 It's the top five. 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 Well, guys, we've had a bit of a theme going recently. I'm not sure if you've put it together yet, but we are in our fifth season here of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I can't believe that in and of itself. But we've also recently just performed Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. We're uh, performing, of course, coming up with um, Eduardo. We're performing Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony. And then our jingle for this top five is to the tune of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. So there's a lot of Fifth Symphonies here happening. So this week, I thought it would be fun if we rated our top five Fifth Symphonies. I want you guys to try and say that five times fast. Top five fifth symphonies. Top five fifth symphonies. Top five fifth symphonies. Oh, yeah. I only made it to the second. And I know, okay, this this might sound a little bit out there, but I mean, if you if you really think about it and spend some time with it, there are some truly incredible fifth symphonies out there. Um, So let's rank them. Now, in the past, we've kind of gone through and just kind of lumped everything together. But I think in order for the sake of discussion, let's go from from five to one. Can we do that today for everyone? Sure. So we'll all start with our fifth, fifth symphony, and <laughs> we'll move it up. So, Jason, what is your fifth, fifth symphony? Uh, my fifth, fifth is Sibelius Symphony Number no. 5. I am a big five. fan of two and five from Sibelius. Those are my two favorite of his symphonies, and the fifth is awesome, especially the way it ends. Awesome. Mike, what about you? Uh, you know, for me, my my fifth, and I say this with some reservation because we we played it so many times. I I have gotten a little weary of it, but it's an amazing piece. Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Yeah. Um, mine mine is Mendelssohn's Fifth Symphony. Ah, Mendelssohn's ah. Fifth Symphony is is my fifth on the list. What about you, Eduardo? And mine is Shostakovich. Ah. ah. Good one. We just did it. It's so good, right? It's just so good. And so different from Prokofiev's. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very. All right, so let's move up to fourth. So, Mike, what about your fourth? My fourth uh, fifth. My fourth fifth. Your fourth fifth. Uh, (laughs) My fourth fifth. Uh, I I mean, somewhere on this list, I don't know if it's fourth or first or second or third. You got to have Beethoven fifth on on this list. So, well, I'll, I'll put it in there. They're awesome. Mine is also Beethoven, actually. Beethoven fifth, right there. Um, let's see. Eduardo, what about you? Mine is Mendelssohn. Ah. We're going to have a lot of overlap. That one reversed. That's good. What about you, Jason? Mine is also Beethoven fifth. Look at that. Three of us have Beethoven fifth as our number four. Interesting. All right. So let's see. We'll move on. My third fifth is uh, mine is Shostakovich. I love Shostakovich. Uh, let's see. 
Eduardo. Bruckner. Bruckner. Ah, nice one. Good. I love the way that piece starts, especially with the walking bass line. Great, and, great. And how it ends. It's yes. so fantastic. <laughs> yes. All right, Jason. Uh, uh, mine is on Eduardo's program coming up, Prokofiev 5th. I think it's an incredible piece, and I'm so glad that we're doing it uh, with Eduardo this week. It's, it's one of the best. Awesome. How about you, Mike? Well, I, I love Prokofiev too, but I, I also love Sibelius. I have to have another shout out for Sibelius 5th. Ah, nice. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's see. We're to number two now. This is this is where it, it, it gets nail biting. <laughs> the drama is building. <laughs> Eduardo, what is your number two fifth symphony? Mahler. Ah, oh, ah, nice. Nice. Good choice. Uh, let's see. Jason. Mine is Shostakovich. I just think not only is it an incredible piece, but it's one of the most important pieces of his output and of the 20th century. So I'm going to go Shostakovich. Awesome, Mike. Yeah, I I mean I don't I don't want to brown nose here, but I was also going to say Mahler. How is that <laughs> nice. brown nosing? Well, you know, going with the going with the conductor's choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my number two is actually Tchaikovsky. I am a sucker for Tchaikovsky Ooh. five, especially the slow movement. It's just that's this my jam. I was gonna say you're married to a horn player, so well, I wasn't gonna <laughs> get. Sense. I wasn't gonna get you know into that. But since you brought it up, it was the first <laughs> thing I ever heard my husband play, and you know, oh. sparks happen. It's yeah, I know. Nice. <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> um, all right. So now to the number one. Da, 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 da. Number this one. This is so exciting. Uh, fifth Symphony. Let's start with Jason. Um, without a doubt, this is not only my favorite Fifth Symphony, this is my favorite symphony and perhaps my favorite piece of orchestral music. And we've already said it. Mahler Symphony Number no. 5. I just think it's unbelievable. Awesome. Mike? Well, uh, we keep... We keep batting around uh, a lot of the same pieces because, of course, there are only so many Fifth Symphonies in the world, and there are a lot of great ones. Uh, but Shostakovich Fifth has a special place in my heart as well, so I'll I'll put that as my number one. Awesome. Um, I'm putting as number one for mine because I am a shameless symphony promoter. I'm saying Prokofiev Symphony Number no. Five. Come here <laughs> this week. <laughs> Conducted by Maestro Eduardo Strausser. You can get tickets at kcsymphony.org or by calling the box office. (laughs) (laughs) Eduardo, what about you? Mine is Beethoven 5. Beethoven. Ah, At the top. That's right. Oh, then it fits right in because, you know, (laughs) we are who we are and we have an amazing jingle for this segment. Well done. Well, I'm surprised that no one said Brahms' Fifth Symphony. It, it just got discovered last week. I can't believe. Have you guys listened to it? Jason. I'm just kidding. Jason. I'm kidding. Jason is the king of the dad jokes. Yes. Yeah. Well, we are going to put um, links to all of these Fifth Symphonies in our show notes. So we'll have a playlist put together so you can easily access all of these great Fifth Symphonies and check them out and familiarize yourself with the. Uh, Ones that you don't know and fall in love again with the ones that you really do know. Um, but Eduardo, thank you for joining us today and for the great conversations uh, that we have sparked our morning with. And uh, I feel energized to go forth and do some good work today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. And safe travels uh, to Kansas City. Thank you. It's going to be a long trip. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing you're coming when you're coming because. 
we get these weather reports where sometimes it'll be like, you can get 13 inches of snow and then it will be zero. So that's what we're looking at for later this week. So who knows? Oh, wow. We might have snow when you get here. We might not. It will. <laughs> we'll have to see. But I want to remind everyone to rate, review, and subscribe this podcast. Uh, we love you as listeners, so we'd love to hear what you think. Also, please come hear the Kansas City Symphony under the direction of Maestro Eduardo Strausser this weekend, February 4th through 6th. Um, music by Dvorak Tchaikovsky and, of course, Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony. And uh, you can get tickets at kcsymphony.org. Well, next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we're talking off the podium again, this time with conductor Michael Francis. Michael is currently music director of the Florida Orchestra and joins the Kansas City Symphony in March for a program of Purcell, Mozart, and Elgar. Tune in for a great chat and more top five fun next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>